I think my department had the time. He did say something that really, uh, it was great in the moment. He said, if you're not upsetting anyone, you're probably not doing anything important. Welcome to the Nexus People podcast, an exploration of the local UX community. I'm a computer science professor at NC State. My name is Sha. I am a graduate student in College of Design. I'm Anne McLaughlin. I am an associate professor in the psychology department at NC State. And uh, you're from Mobile. How did you end up in San Antonio? I was born in Foley, Alabama. So I grew up there, and I knew I wanted to, you know, check out some other geographic locations, and Texas sounded pretty great. So I was looking at SMU and Rice, and then uh-huh. uh, I did a visit to Trinity University, and it just felt perfect. I mean, it was just <laughs> the right size, just the right attitude. San Antonio is a beautiful city. I love San Antonio. I, I was hooked. So that's where I went for college. So did you go to Trinity thinking, I, wanna, I might want to do psychology? Oh, absolutely not. No? I went to college absolutely assured that I was going to be a reporter. I wanted oh. to be... Did they have journalism there? You were mm-hmm. just going to... Yeah. Oh, Started as a communication major, looked into that, took that for a couple classes, realized that it wasn't what I thought. You know, it was interesting, but it wasn't, okay. you know, being a writer. And so then I was an English major, and then I added a psychology major about halfway through. So yeah. I was a double major in English and psychology. Yeah. And then by the time you finished, you, were, you knew psychology was the thing. I thought so, yeah. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed my psychology classes. Um, but being at such a small school, I, I just got this message that, you know, psychology is about being a counselor or being oh. a psychoanalyst or being a psychiatrist or something like that. And, um, you know, we covered a lot of really cool psychology research, but just as far as careers went, that's mm. sort of the, the feeling I got. And I knew I didn't want to do those things. You know, I, I wasn't good at it. I wasn't really interested in it. And so I kind of thought, well, I guess that's what you have to do, though, if you're a psychology major. And so I was looking into jobs, like working at juvenile homes and, um, you know, being a phone counselor and things like that. And then I just happened upon a job at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle. Oh. And they you do... Somewhere online or something? I can't even remember. I mean, this is 1998. There was no online. Yeah, I was going to say. Know? And I think I was... I wanted to move to the Northwest. I wanted uh-huh. to see what that was like. Okay. And this job there, um, it was doing cancer prevention research. Oh. And it was all psychology. It was public health and psychology. It was... Oh, so you have roots there. Yeah, doing different interventions. And um, even with insurance companies, like broad-scale interventions to try and get people to eat five vegetables a day, quit smoking, all the things that are cancer Mm. prevention. So it wasn't cancer research like, you know, test tubes and stuff like that. It was public health research. And so I did that for a couple of years and really loved it, uh, and then got into human factors for graduate school after that. So you, that was a job between yeah, two years Trinity and Georgia Tech. In Seattle, yeah. Okay. George, uh, Seattle and, and Atlanta. I know. I came back to the south. Came back to, <laughs> came back to the southeast. Yeah. Cool. In terms of human factors, um, when I was at Trinity, my very last semester... I took a class that was a special topics in human factor psychology. And I'd never heard of it before, oh. didn't know anything about it. It had never been taught at Trinity. Oh, wow. And it was never taught again. It was a guest 
um, a guest professor from uh, Brooks Air Force Base who taught that class. Cool. So I just got really lucky. Now you might say I got unlucky because it was my last semester, so graduate school applications were already done. There weren't any. Um, But that probably helped push you in that direction. Absolutely. I took that class and I thought, this is what I've been waiting for. This is exactly (laughs) what I want to do with my life. Unfortunately, it's the last semester of college, and now I need to go to graduate school, and I'm not ready. (laughs) But, um, yeah, that was... I I remember taking that class and thinking, oh, my goodness, people get to... I've been doing this (laughs) informally since I was 15. Yeah, this is stuff I really care about. I love ideas of design and when things are frustrating, what makes them better, and having ways to predict how to make them better. Right. It just really, really resounded with me. That's so cool. I uh, read your abstract of your dissertation uh-huh. at Georgia Tech. Yeah. Do you think, like, uh, you know, but basically what it said was f- people can't figure out, sometimes feedback seems to help, sometimes it doesn't seem to help. People can't figure out why it helps. Did, did you think, do you think you found a conclusive answer there? Well, you know, okay, so I've, I've always people been People worked interested. on it for a long time. Was oh, pretty, yeah, like yeah. 100 years. Yeah. Um, feedback is a really interesting topic for design. And the reason I'm so interested in it is because you see it everywhere. And once you start dividing it into different categories, that's when it starts mattering more or less. Right. So I'll give you an example. I could give you feedback that you're right or wrong and you should have done X or Y. Or I can give you feedback that is more personal. I can say, you did a good job. You know, you failed. Things like that. Uh And so there's some research saying that you can divide feedback that way and say that if feedback is directed at the person it often makes you focus on yourself and uses up some of those extra resources you could be putting towards the task and hurts okay. performance. And the Whereas alternative if you could is... focus it on a task, task, what to do, what you should have done, but without right. it being about you. Without like the right answer was, or this is how you do it. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, but not, no, um, no good job or bad job kind hmm. of feedback. So that's one way you can look at it. Um, but you can also look at feedback in terms of when do you give it. So you could give feedback immediately where, you know, you answer a multiple choice question and the right answer pops up and you get to see it. Right. Or you could delay for some amount of time, anywhere from a few seconds to weeks sometimes for these undergraduate students who are waiting for their tests to get back. Right. And the question is, well, what, you know, what kinds of changes to feedback are best for learning? And so that brought up this really interesting question that was sort of addressed back in the 80s, but still, I think, shows up today when you don't, if you don't pay attention to this past research, where they categorized um, the way you can think about uh, feedback as being good for either learning, which would be some sort of long-term change in your knowledge or your skill, or for performance, which is doing something well right now. Right. And a lot of studies would look at feedback and come to these conclusions based on what we call performance. I give you feedback, right then you do better, therefore feedback is great. But there's this interesting paradox that was uh, in a great 1992 article talked about, that the paradox is that the things that are best for your performance now may be the worst for your Hmm. learning. That's interesting. So things that... You know, the idea came about of having a desirable difficulty where if you make something a little bit harder on somebody while while they're learning and they have to struggle through it and use all the same processes they're going to have to do to retrieve that information later. So, you know, uh, really come up with the answer themselves or develop a process for answering it themselves that later they're going to do pretty good. 
But if you support them too much and give them feedback and the kind of feedback that really supports them performing right then, right. that once you take that away, they're gonna their performance is gonna drop precipitously. Huh. So it's this interesting, you know, what is your goal? Is your goal performance? Because sometimes it is. If you are about to for the first and only, hopefully, time, use one of those um, AEDs, the defibrillators, oh, for, right. for someone who's having a heart attack. Um, you want performance. You want someone to open that do package right, and do right it right now. the first time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to teach someone to be a good surgeon or a student, trying to have them remain, you know, hopefully remember something next semester, then you may want to target learning. So you might give different kinds of feedback support depending on your goal is it performance or is it learning interesting huh that's a lot more than i read in your abstract (laughs) (laughs) your abstract seems to say the amount of feedback that you provide should depend on how on the person's working memory yeah so i was looking into individual differences so i actually selected groups of people who tested for very high working memory so people who could really hold a lot of things in their head at once or people who had pretty low working memory compared to average Um, to see what would be best. And so, you know, I predicted that you might want to give people with high working memory less feedback because then they could sort of do all those internal processes to learn really well themselves. Um, But I'll tell you, in my dissertation in particular, what happened was that... Opposite. Yeah, the rich got richer. So the more information you could pour into the high working memory people, the better they used it later. Yeah. So It's interesting, so if you're a designer of a learning system or maybe other sort of anything where, where they're trying to learn something, you know, like learn a new system. How do you know what the right amount of feedback is? You know, maybe they, there should just be a slider or something. Yeah, and I've been struggling with that for a lot of years now, actually. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm definitely coming down on the side of the rich do seem to get richer. The, yeah. You know, the, the higher cognitive abilities people have, the more you can pour it on them and have them use it later, and they remember it. Um, that said, I think it might be useful to look at the kind of tasks they're doing. So if they're learning something like a, a history class or chemistry class, where they're learning facts that they're going to have to remember later, that's one type of learning. But if you're learning a skill, like doing sutures or some kind of you know motor skill that... Right. And I, th- I think then that's when developing your internal feedback might be more important than for right. these more declarative knowledge skills, like when was the Battle of Hastings or some other kind of piece of information. So um, you want to have, I mean, with I think with all it's useful to have some practice in, you know, transferring the learn the initial learning to retention. So if I make you, you know, if, I, if you're in my class... <laughs> That would be great. If you're in my class, then, you know, making you retrieve the information over and over rather than just giving it to you over and over, you're going to practice retrieving. So then when you're tested, you've already practiced retrieving. So, you know, that's, that's a good way to support is to, you know, make sure that the feedback is at least delayed or low enough that you ask people to do that retrieval. As you mentioned earlier, is the working memory capacity can be improved by chaining, or is just comes in nature? That's a really good question. So I think you're asking, can we train people to have higher working memory skills than, than they can demonstrate now, or working memory ability? Um, on that one, I would have to say the evidence is very, very 
against being able to substantially change your working huh. memory capacity. So um, what about all these like palaces of whatever? Well, if you think about it, uh, I, I guess that, that's a really great question. So yeah. thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> So working memory capacity is seen as an ability that you have. And so there are a lot of tests that give us a proxy measurement of what that might be. So Uh one of my favorites is called the alphabet span. And it's basically I give you a list of words and you have to alphabetize them in your head and then write them down in alphabetical order. Okay. And so how many of those you can do gives me an indicator of how many things you can hold and manipulate. And that's why it's called working memory is because you're working with it. So it's not just repeating back a telephone number. It's really moving things around and working with what you're holding in your memory. Um, so that's a good one. Another one would be trying to uh, remember a string of letters, and after every letter is presented, you have to do a math problem. But mm-hmm. then re- keep the letter in mind, and then keep two letters in mind. And so how many letters you can keep in mind while also working with your working memory and solving math problems gives me an indicator. Are that, is that what you call the end math? Uh, the impact is a different one, but very similar. So okay. these are all just tests that give us a, an idea of what this construct of your working memory capacity would be. Um, in general, your working memory capacity gets better and better until you're 18 to early 20s. And then around 25, 26, it just starts going down. So okay. um, that slope of how you're going to decline in your working memory capacity can differ for different people. And... So the idea is, well, maybe we can change that slope. And there do seem to be some factors that influence that slope, like um, uh, your nutrition, your social interaction, how many things that you interact with in your life and do, uh, activities, things like that. But a lot of this is, it's all correlational because it might be that the reason you do all these things is because you've been maintaining your working memory better than someone else. So we don't know the direction there. Um, but studies that have tried to just improve working memory capacity have not shown much. Hmm. So it doesn't seem like you can change that. But that's an interesting question when you said about the memory palaces. The memory palaces. They don't depend on working memory. Oh, okay. So the idea behind a memory palace is that it's long-term memory that you're able to pull out. Okay. So with a memory palace, you know, for example, I have my own house, and I want to remember a list of um, cards. And so the first thing I do is I associate every card with a celebrity. That's a good, that's the typical way you do it. Right. And you have to train on that until it's automatic. So it's so, you so know. So it's no longer short. Yeah. As soon as you're training until it's automatic. It's completely automatic. So I show you, <laughs> I show you the king of spades and you see Elvis, you uh-huh. know, I mean, it's like right there. And so then when I see that card, I tag it to a location in my house and I move through the house, putting these different celebrities you have to order the house, though, I guess, if you're trying yeah, to Yeah, a path order. through yeah. the house. and um, So the idea is that you're just basically making these long-term memories and making a story that you're going to retell to retrieve those memories. So did you ever run across any uh, of all the people who helped you with your work, um, the elderly? Did you run across people who, many people who are already playing games in some fashion? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah? I'd say, I can, I can say that, this is just a, me thinking through, I don't think I have this published anywhere, but Absolutely Solitaire is the most popular game okay. for participants to have played before. Yeah. So if we said, what did you play before, Solitaire is a good one. It comes with Windows, so. Exa- well, here's the interesting part. It wasn't always for the fun of Solitaire, although who doesn't like Solitaire? Some participants would say that they would do it because it was pretty fun, but also because it gave them practice using a mouse. Oh, okay. Because you have to just use the mouse, and you're constantly targeting and clicking and dragging and 
That's uh, good. That you know you're getting some skills out of it while you're having fun. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah. And I have said, we see that less and less because the cohort of people over 65 is, you know, getting more and more familiar with computers. Yeah, technologically savvy. But even just a few years ago, we had, you know, people in our studies who'd never used a mouse before. Um, my father's never used a mouse. He still hasn't. He would have no idea. Mm-hmm. And we think it's so obvious that, you know, moving the mouse forward goes up. That is not obvious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all sort of built into our sort of motor motor skills now, but it's there is a strong disconnect. There's no natural association necessarily between an object on a table and something on a vertical screen. They're yeah, not, it's not as not as straightforward as touch touch surfaces. Right, because there could yeah. be a gain difference. You yeah, know, you move an inch, it moves two inches, and you're looking and acting in the same place. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, your the targeting is harder. Yeah. So I can see how, you know, the, the cards on Solitaire are fairly nice, large targets, but you also have to think about clicking and dragging. If that's not something you do every day, clicking yeah. and dragging is hard, and it can be, there, there can be age-related changes in that feedback you get from your own fingers. And so you think you click, but then your finger moves a little and it unclicks and then clicks again, and then you've lost your, your card or your target or whatever it was you're right. holding. So, I mean, you can imagine that a lot of clicking and dragging for um, you know, Word or file systems or anything you might do on a computer could be really, really challenging if you haven't been doing it your whole life and you might have these new age-related changes in your movement ability. Hmm. We did a, a fun little study that was part of a class project back in my, in my Human Factors class, and this was a group that wanted to look at um, how people over 70 would use gestures on touchscreens. Okay. Uh, and this was the idea. The idea was to adapt it for fun games and to make sure that the game interaction was something that was easy to do. So they went and interviewed um, a number of people at an independent living center. So people are living independently at this place. It's, yeah. This is not assisted living. And they would first have them try and do things like a pinch to zoom or yeah, expand. It's one of the most basic things. Yeah. yeah. And so first they would see, did they know? And I think one person already knew how to do it. Just one. Okay. Then they would show them very specific and have them really watch how it's done. And then they would have them do it in front of them and they would report it. And it was really interesting that even after showing someone and having them try and make the movement themselves, it was very, very challenging hmm. to even do something like, you know, pinch to expand or pinch to make smaller or swipe. Was swipe it a mechanical was difficulty or just some sort of cognitive issue? Kind of coordinating, having two fingers in one place and then having them yeah. move the, to the extent you wanted to get to be able to see what you wanted. So in a way, that's kind of best case scenario because you're actually touching the thing you want to make bigger, you're making a gesture and you're seeing feedback immediately so you could yeah. theoretically stop. Um, but people had a lot of trouble with it. And so I, I think that what they didn't do was have them do it over a period of time. So I bet the learning curve would be pretty pretty good. But yeah. it definitely might be something where if you're just introduced to it once and here's a product at Best Buy and you give it a shot and you say, oh, that's not for me. That's, that's not working. It's too hard. Right, but you get used to it over time. Maybe. Yeah. Huh. So you could see how that would kind of fit into the problem of getting people to adopt new technologies. Is that It's interesting. I mean, uh, off the top of my head, I would think that a gesture, you know, 
a well-chosen one at least, would be more accessible than like navigating some kind of a menu or like you're saying, dragging with a mouse. And I think it it, yeah. it is. Yeah. It's just not still not great. Yeah. <laughs> it still needs to be great. Yeah. And gestures themselves, I mean, there are certain ways in which they're very well integrated, like the zoom and the tap, the most basic ones. But there's a whole range of gestures most people don't even know about on, on today's devices because they're so sort of ad hoc and inconsistently used or made available. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Maybe, you know, this concept of universal design would be helpful. Like, if it made it work for for older people, wherever they may be, then um, maybe it would work better for everybody. You know? Well, yeah. It, most things seem to be that way. <laughs> there might be a few. I'm not, I'm not totally on board with there's a perfect design for everything because no. I feel like there are too many individual differences yeah. between people. But, I, but the, given that the state of gestures, if, if I'm correct, the state of gestures is sort of bad right now, then maybe it yeah. would improve things if we thought about it from that perspective for a while. Well, and as soon as we're, we solve it for touchscreens, now we're moving into a 3D world with yeah. AR and VR, augmented reality and virtual reality, and having to solve for gestures and interfaces in yeah. that environment. Uh, and that's something that people are rarely, if at all, looking into for older persons. So Yeah, and we're still, you know, just full stop and we still haven't figured out how to do that for anybody right (laughs) exactly so I was shocked to read that you were featured in one of these congressional waste reports twice 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 (laughs) yeah you must have developed a thick skin then Uh, well the first time was the scariest because uh, it came out of nowhere yeah right I had just gotten my first big grant I'm super excited about it and then um, the grant was on studying what are the uh, what are the potential ways you should design cognitive training to help older persons improve their their abilities. Yeah. So that sounds totally legit to me. <laughs> and it was trying to isolate it. It was really trying to say, you know, what exactly might be the the key ingredients. You yeah. Know? And so I was looking at the importance of it being a social interaction. Um, the importance of it being uh, attentionally demanding with multitasking and the importance of it being something new that people hadn't done before. So, for example, there's lots of research that if you're a, a, you know, a concert pianist and you do that your whole life, you're still a really good concert pianist at older ages. But is that doing anything for you? Or should, it, should you start to play the violin, for example? So should you do something different? So we were looking at that, and then um, this report came out that listed it as, quote, marketing uh, World of Warcraft to older people, <laughs> or something like that, <laughs> or marketing games. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, like, marketing is the least, the least common thing yeah. that I would ever even consider. Um, but I think it's, you know, probably some sort of aid goes through the list List. of research and pulls out anything as a keyword, like the word game. And so, you know, we had thought that games would be a really good way to investigate these research questions because they're very motivating, uh, for one thing. And second, they're very controllable. So if I have to hire, you know, uh, a violin teacher and then have people show up for violin practice and do something that's, you know, maybe fits the same kind of task but isn't on the computer, that's really hard to measure, control, schedule... Whereas if it's a game, 
I can collect metrics on play performance, time right. playing, achievements, the movements they're making. I can just do a lot more data collection. So that's one of the reasons that we even use games as a domain at all. Does it, games aren't special. It's just a really convenient way to study it. Um, and But I have to say, NC State was very supportive of me when that happened. I was really impressed with that. Who, yeah. was, who was your department head then? Douglas Gillen. Doug? Yeah. So nice of him. And um, the was dean good. was supportive. You know, the, the university was very supportive, and NSF was very supportive. They were very helpful. So they released a statement saying they supported it. Well, I don't know if it, uh, if it had any impact on you, but you've done well since then, so... Well, it was very scary because I, you know, I was <laughs> very pre-tenure at that yeah, point. Yeah, I, I would be scared. Yeah. No, I think um, I think my department had the time. He did say something that really, uh, it was great in the moment. He said, if you're not upsetting anyone, you're probably not doing anything important. You're here. Okay. <laughs> but not that, I, you know, upsetting But it wasn't, wasn't like scary. you chose some pro- politically fraught topic or no. something. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and I really felt for the the researchers who were doing the shrimp on treadmills. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they, <laughs> it, you know, it's just it, it's just an interesting way to target scientists that way. But anyway, so then the second time it happened, happened was, again. Was it the same people? Yes, I think it was the 2012 okay. one, and it was because um, I had a website for the lab that I co-directed with Dr. Jason Lair that was mm-hmm. called the Games Through Gaming, and so I collected all the research there. And so we had one project that had been completely internally funded by NC State, so it was not federally funded at all. It was an internal grant, um, and it was a, a pilot study on looking at um, having inter- you know, older persons play World of Warcraft, and yeah. that became a publication. And uh, I had a student who did a poster on just generally how older adults feel about games. So she did this poster that incorporated both the research that was NSF funded, but then she also talked about, because she's in my lab, she's done all of this. Yeah. She also talked about this small internally funded one. And so, again, the Wastebook said that somehow we were paying older people to play World of Warcraft, which is not, it just wasn't true. <laughs> but what do you say? It, you know, saying it isn't true almost doesn't matter. Yeah. So, but it, but it was because they said, you know, it has to be true. Look, here's this poster that you put you put up on your website that talks about World of Warcraft and then says in the acknowledgments, partially funded by mm-hmm. the National Science Foundation. Well, the National Science Foundation funded the other study that was being discussed, but not the World of Warcraft one. Um, but it's like saying. I I worked at I worked at Chick Fil A and I worked at McDonald's and then I wrote a paper about my yeah. experiences in fast food. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that Chick Fil A paid me to work at McDonald's. Right. right. What do you think of all these learning tools these days? Like all these like tools like Udacity or you know systems or companies like Udacity or Lumosity or whatever they're called. Oh, you mean for the for cognitive training? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I was just part of a large group of researchers who were looking at um, basically issues in experiments examining cognitive training. Right. And, um, you know, some of the issues that come up a lot are lack of control groups or um, so problems we don't know of if transfer. It, if it really affects without control. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, or... 
If it does, is it a very temporary change? Is it long-lasting? Does it transfer to other yeah. you know, possible skills? So the answer is there's, there seems to be very low transfer. So there have been people who've done work on these sort of cognitive training tools. Yes, uh-huh. yes. And uh, I was part of the, a large group of scientists that signed a letter saying that the uh, experimental support was not there for the claims that companies yeah. like Luminosity were making. So Lum- Lum- Luminosity? Is Lumosity. Lumosity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting paid by NPR or whatever the, they advertise on. Um, yeah, Lumosity. So do you think that uh, when it comes to learning, are you interested in sort of the learning... Um, that students do in classes, that sort of formal learning, or are you just in more generally interested in how people learn? I sort of moved from different domains because I was looking at a kind of what you might call more declarative learning or knowledge yeah. knowledge acquisition back when I was doing my dissertation. I've gotten more interested in you know, uh, perceptual learning and different types of learning that I think might be more affected by the type of feedback you give. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, I had the fortune of working with some uh, veterinarians at the NC State Vet School to look cool. at some of the research questions they had. Um, I happened to meet one of the cardiologists on a plane ride, and we just started talking, and I started talking about how much I love human factors, and he said, we need something like this for some of our training at, at the vet school. So, for example, we looked at when they're doing a uh, particular heart surgery that uses a catheter, there are different um, ways you can glance at the shape of the catheter and get an idea of whether it's uh, in Ah. a dangerous position or not. And so as we, this is is a great thing because with a, a veterinary school, we can observe these surgeries pretty easily, whereas if we were going to Duke to watch the same surgery in people, there would be a lot of privacy concerns. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for Fluffy the dog, it's not as, not as bad. <laughs> less concern. Um, but we got to really watch and see how much, for example, the, the residents who are trained are using a fluoroscopy machine to see where they are in the heart versus how often the faculty were. And sometimes it was about a tenfold difference in how much the residents had to look and how long they had to look to see what they were doing and where they are, whereas the faculty have been doing this for many years and they can just... The perceptual learning is just that they can glance and they know if it's right or wrong. I see. So when they are using the fluoroscopy, how much time are they looking at that particular set of images? Well, so yeah, every yeah. time they press the foot pedal, there's a little bit of radiation going everywhere and you want to reduce that. Yeah. So if you can get them to see what they need at a faster time at a glance, okay, then there's less issues with having to use that machine. So the idea was, can we develop a training system that the students or residents could use to speed up that acquisition of um, perceptual learning where they could glance at what they're seeing on the screen and know whether it's right or wrong. Hmm. Yeah. And so that's what one of my students did for his master's was looking at um, so ways that's more the perceptual feedback. side that you were talking about. Yeah, so I feel like there are all these different tasks that you can investigate, and so I've, I've moved a little bit more towards both perceptual and maybe even a motor task because I think that those are going to be the most influenced by these changes in feedback. Whereas declarative knowledge, like telling you, you know, is that right about the chemical composition of blah, 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 that that's a, you know, that's a piece of knowledge versus right. doing something, whether it's, you know, a perceptual skill or, right. or a 
movement skill. Right. I was uh, interested in the work that you did on um, information visualization displays for health. Mm-hmm. What did you learn there? I, I couldn't find any detailed references to it. Yeah, that's something that's a little bit ongoing. As I have, um, cool. I have a student who she did her master's, and now she's doing her dissertation on looking at um, coming up with how you should display information for uh, things like. Uh, portion sizing or okay. trying to, to learn how to deal with a chronic health, health condition that is impacted by diet. And so, so some behavioral challenges there. Definitely some behavioral challenges in terms of like barriers for why people would or wouldn't even want to yeah. work on this. But um, really what is interesting to me is that this is, again, sort of a, a skill-based task. So you could have the knowledge, like I need to eat three ounces of protein per right. day. And that's a piece of knowledge you have. But then estimating what three ounces looks like at a restaurant, that's hard. So that estimation skill is much more in line with the kind of work I'm interested in looking at feedback for. So her idea was to not really use um, any sort of labels, verbal labels for the training, but to instead present augmented reality instances of what something should look like. Oh, I see. So, so you're able like to, a portion size? Yeah, yeah. So it could be a portion size. And then she's looking at whether or not if you can train people to do these estimations, what kind of feedback should you give, what okay. should the system look like. And then I think really interestingly, does it transfer, what does it transfer to or not transfer to? So for example, um, one of the things she had people learn to estimate was a, a very amorphous food like rice or quinoa, something that's yeah, blocking. You're, yeah, you're measuring quantities. Yeah, so you're trying to say, well, what's, this. Yeah. what's a couple ounces of quinoa or what's, yeah. a, what's a volume equivalent? Yeah. And then can you transfer that learning that you did with the quinoa to a piece of meat? Huh. Yeah. Um, short answer so far, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we're looking at some other, some other ways to, to hmm. tag the estimation they're doing to knowledge that they have. So, for example... Um, Here's the, you know, the AR representation of the size you're looking for, but you're also looking for about the size of a deck of cards. So, so to give you a label for that. Is the augmented reality representation abstracted, or is it some realistic-looking thing? That's one of the things she's looking at. So okay. she's manipulating that. So for her dissertation, she has one that is realistic-looking, like an object that has meaning, and the other is a similar shape but doesn't have a, a, a meaningful label to it. Hmm. And I would imagine the amounts you want to, uh, would vary by food. Like a serving size depends on the makeup of the food, whatever it is. And again, we're really interested in how do you do that training. So you can, you know, do you want to train people to always estimate the same size? Or does training them on a bunch of different sizes mean that they're able to make better guesses at sizes they've never even practiced? Huh. And the idea is called variable training. And the idea is based on, I think, what really old study back um, in the late 70s where they looked at throwing bean bags. So it was a motor skill, throwing bean bags into a, a bin. Uh-huh. And so one group practiced at the same distance throwing the bean bag. Let's, I don't remember, but let's say four feet. Okay. And then another group practiced at two feet, three feet, and five feet. So they never practiced at four feet. And at the end of the study, the group that practiced at two, three, and five did better at four feet than the, pra- the group that practiced only at four feet. So huh. we took that same idea, and we want to see, well, then, do you train people to estimate all these different sizes, and then we're going to test them 
um, on some sizes that they've never seen before and see how they compare to groups who practice that particular estimation size. And the goal is to estimate size or amounts regardless of caloric content or whatever? We're starting with that, yeah, because that's another variable we can't Yeah. (laughs) Too much balance in there, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, cool. Well, thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you for talking with me. This is exciting. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Nexus People podcast. To learn more, go to our website at nexus.ncsu.edu. That's nexux.ncsu.edu. You can learn more there about our monthly meetups. We're also on Twitter at nexus underscore USA. Nexus are sponsored by Eastman Chemical, Lexin Nexus, and KPIT. This podcast was produced by Sha Liao. Our music was composed and performed by Ricky Harper. Thanks for listening.